You're listening to Level Up Game Product Managers Edition with Melissa Zalou from IronSource and Joe Kim, the founder of Game Makers. So welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing games. This week's episode is the third installment in our new mini-series focused on game product management. And we're going to be talking about how product managers approach coming up with new products and how best to evaluate new games. As per usual on this mini-series, we're joined by my wonderful co-host for the Level Up GPM edition, Joe Kim, who's the founder of the Game Makers blog and YouTube channel, and also by Conrad McGee-Stocks, who is growth lead at You Can Games. So hi, both of you, and thanks for being on the show. Hi. Hey, how's it going? So, Conrad, I thought we could first start by hearing a little bit about yourself, kind of your journey in the games industry, and what you do at You Can Games today. Sure. Yeah, so I can I can talk to you a little bit about my journey with You Can. Actually, our 10-year, this is funny, our 10-year anniversary is tomorrow, so we're going to have a little thing at the office, but um, I joined uh, halfway through, so a little over five years ago, and we've been in the mobile space for like I said, 10 years, um, we started doing games like really cross platform early days. So iOS, Android, Blackberry, Facebook games, you name it, we made it. Um, we started in the mid quarter phase. So if you think like Mob Wars area, I don't know how many, how many people of the listeners will be familiar with those kind of games. Um, one of our early really successful titles was Forces of War. And then over time, we sort of started exploring other areas. Social Casino was a, a sort of an area that we explored and we fairly successful with um recently actually we um exited the sort of social casino space um with an acquisition of our social casino sort of game vertical by jam city and you know that was like a really positive experience for everybody um i know that not everybody sort of like has those experiences in the game space but you know it was really awesome for us you know jam city is great um and so now we're kind of firmly in casual trivia. So currently we're working on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Jeopardy World Tour. Uh, and then we've got a, a word game and soft launch right now called Wild Words. And then we also have a uh, an AR pool title called Kings of Pool. Um, so that's what we've got on the go right now. Got it. And it seems like this topic in terms of coming up with new products is probably top of mind for you guys, just given the very successful sale of Bingo. But could you talk about in terms of the organization now after the the acquisition, what does a company look like in terms of like the number of people and the kind, kinds of people that you have at the company? Yeah, sure. So I think we're about 80 people, um, you know, give or take. And so we're I would say fairly traditionally set up um, as a mobile game studios. So you have product development, platform or like engineering services, um, growth, and then, you know, traditional HR or accounting, that kind of stuff. So the, that's like sort of six main disciplines, I'd call it. Okay. And then in terms of the size of the organization, how, how, how big are you guys now? Uh, 80 people. And then how many people do you devote to like different game teams? Um, so that's typically tend to be like, call it 20 people ballpark okay. it really depends on like you know what the project is at what scale it is you know a game going into tech launch is going to be a lot smaller than something that you know sort of full speed worldwide which is also going to be different than something that's been live for a little while and is in kind of more like live off mode got it cool conrad uh, the topic we're covering today is actually it's what you recently covered at a iron source event for game product managers why is this topic close to your heart given the sale of bingo is there a kind of a greater imperative now to try and figure out the next big game to develop? Uh, 
Um, I think, you know, we're always thinking about, you know, what's going to be the next big thing or, you know, where's their opportunity. And I guess my involvement with that process, I know sort of peers of mine who work in growth UA and then also ad monetization don't always touch sort of like product and what game should we work on. From our perspective, and definitely my perspective, I think it's kind of selfish. It's really easy to grow something if you pick a winner from the start. True. So, you know, you're able to do that. And I think you can kind of take the same lens that you look through when you're trying to scale something or when you're trying to do like really successful UA and in sort of saying like, okay, well, what do we wish we had? What genre do we wish we were in? What, you know, product features do we think would sell exceptionally well? And then kind of taking a more product lens on that and really trying to like identify opportunity from the start, if that makes sense. I mean, Joe, this sounds a lot like the podcast we did last week about the kind of increased collaboration between UA and PM teams, which is kind of exactly what you're describing. Yeah, I am the hugest believer that people that are in growth or in UA should be really close to product, if not like thought of as on the product team. And then Conrad, in terms of like the green light process currently at UCAN, what what does that look like and how structured is that in terms of you know, the, the approach to identifying new game products? Yeah, so I think it should be a pretty structured process. There's a really good article on Deconstructor of Fun that talks about this and it goes into like really great detail. Um, and I think that that as like a baseline is really great. So I'd encourage, and maybe we can like link it in the show notes or something. But I think the most critical point of a green lighting process is that third word there in, in that it's a process. Um, and I think that there is definitely a lot of rigor um, that should be applied to thinking about new opportunities. Well, you saying I need a process like I need a hero. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That That's the thing that should be sung. And I'll kind of come back for that a little bit. I think there are two schools of thought, or at least there's two schools of thought that I've been exposed to since I've been working in the industry. And that's some people who are like rigorous protests, let's figure this out. And then there's other people who just, it's a lot more looser and a lot more like, oh, well, like what feels right? And I think there's definitely a place for both of them. I think that depending on like the scale of the company, the stage, like all these things kind of determine like when, you know, sort of what tool you reach for in your like process tool belt but that's the way that I would think about it for us I mean the biggest thing is really like fostering creativity and that sounds kind of warm and fuzzy um, but it's really about getting like as many insights or as, as many ideas as possible and then kind of distilling those down from like okay you make sure everybody gets what the company objective or what the project objective is and then you kind of go through a funnel and distill that into one pagers and then yeah, understanding and evaluating like opportunities to execute on. And I think there's kind of like a separate sort of flow for that. So meaning how you balance the art and the science of it is essentially to kind of subject the warm and fuzzy to much more sort of rigorous analysis. Yeah, exactly. Like I think that's like the biggest part of how you do that and how you sort of sort ideas from as many people as possible. And then really get everybody sort of thinking about, you know, what would work, what would be successful. Um, once you've kind of primed everybody with their ability to understand like, okay, this is the opportunity or this is what we're trying all for. Mm, now go away and come up with some ideas. Exactly. You know, not everybody is going to have the same perspective. And I think when you really surface those things and you're able to build like a disparate viewpoint, I'll give you an example of kind of like our idea funnel. So we'll start with like a kind of company-wide call for, hey, here's a game pitch or we're looking for pitches. And obviously like, you know, product folks or sort of folks on my team are going to be more suited to that in that it's going to kind of align closer to with the way they operate. But that's not to say that we're going to sort of say no to anything. Um, so key here is understanding, hey, there's a format for how to present an idea and communicate it. And then it's also important, um, you know, to sort of set expectations that 
this isn't just like an open call to not do your job because I think everyone's a bedroom game designer. Closet game designer. So I think that's an important expectation. So it kind of takes some uh, experience there to, to make sure that everyone's on the same page, but from there, so it's like, okay, I'd call for game pitches. That's like a hundred percent narrow down to the top ideas, call it like 10%. And then 5% of those you have like kind of mini high level general game design documents with kind of core elements. And then from there, you sort of run them through a framework where you're looking at the market and trying to say like, okay, does this opportunity make sense? Does it look like there's room in the market for this? And then how does this, how do we feel about our ability to execute on that kind of opportunity? So this is very interesting that you're saying open call for game pitches. You've sort of used words like everyone. And you've also said that everyone is is kind of a, a closet game designer. Is what's kind of the proportion like in terms of focus or human resources in terms of who's focused on optimizing current games, like, you know, um, improving live ops versus dedicating time to coming up with new games? And kind of relatedly, is there ever a worry about someone sort of wasting or spending too much time on game pitching and not on or on crafting a game pitch and not on their uh, quote-unquote real job for sure yeah and that's totally in line with kind of what i was thinking so in, in terms of like portion definitely i would say fewer people thinking about new things so like part of the goal is getting you know sort of getting ideas from everyone but then obviously it takes you know time effort and it sort of thought to refine those so there's fewer people doing that for sure and i think that's also why process is hugely important mm-hmm. when you've got ideas coming from multiple places and you know when there's the potential for you know people to kind of get distracted you know like everyone has uh, what I would call shiny object syndrome um, there's a lot of like cognitive biases that can happen you know you've got like the bandwagon effect where the uptake of beliefs and ideas appear more than they already are because they're adopted by others so you're like oh I totally agree with this you know totally love this idea you know so there, there's tons of things that can kind of happen there's also you know you get like anchored to a new idea and, and then you're like, oh, this is totally going to be successful. And then you've got like confirmation bias where you're like, oh, this one piece of information, you know, maybe there's like some game that's trending really well, or, you know, somebody's looking on App Annie and they're like, oh, this game is doing really well from a revenue perspective. Like we should, to- this totally has to be the area we explore next. So that those things to me kind of all fall into the shiny object bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that like the process point is really important and you have to be sort of like really uh, diligent about like, okay, we need to come up with ideas. This is a really fun process, but we also can't kind of distract from our main objectives or our main focus. And I think that's why it's also really good to sort of make sure that scope's really well set. So having like one pagers for ideas, that way you can really get everyone's thoughts down like concisely. Right. And Connor, it sounds like the ideation process started as kind of an open call, so involving sort of everybody. But how much of the effort in terms of like the new product analysis and valuation is dedicated with full-time people? It sounds like it kind of starts off as like a part-time thing by everybody. And then when does it, or does it get to a a point where there are a few people who are full-time dedicated to the new game project? And then, you know, who are those people that are more full-time if if that's what does happen? Yeah, it's mostly sort of like part-time on the product side, a lot of that workflow sort of funnels through me and then some other people on like the corporate development team, if you want to think of it that way, who evaluate it. And then it's like a, a broader discussion with the other game leads and trying to figure out, you know, who should be responsible for the project. If it's something that we feel like we want to move forward to sort of 
continue um, to understand more about. That's kind of how it works, if that's if that makes sense. So what kind of company culture or work atmosphere do you think is most conducive to coming up with good ideas, basically, especially if you're kind of expecting or not expecting, but giving everyone the opportunity to, to do the warm and fuzzy and be creative and kind of think outside the box beyond making sure that there's a clear process and scope in place? How do you also just kind of encourage people to, to I guess, think outside the box? Or do you want them to think inside the box of the scope that you give them? I I definitely don't think it's about thinking. I, I think if you're going to think of, so, and I, and I think that kind of relates to, you know, when you're talking about inside or outside of a box or the box, that's kind of like, okay, are you doing a mm. plus one on, on something that does really well or the outside of the box type of stuff I think is, is almost like you're, you know, you're, you're doing like a genre mashup or you're doing something totally net new. And I think there's definitely a place for both of those in terms of, you know, what you need from a culture standpoint. Um, yeah, I think you definitely need like an open culture. Um, so you know, where there's a lot of transparency. I, I don't know if that goes as far as like the Ray Dalio radical transparency thing, but you need definitely need to have an environment where ideas are shared openly, criticism uh, and feedback is shared on those ideas. Well, that's like a huge compelling component. Um, you got to be collaborative. Um, so, you know, in studios that have really siloed structure, I think this really breaks down. It, it really has to be like, oh, well, I have this thing. And, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Mm. And oh, well, what about this? Like you really need that sort of ping pong of ideas. Um, I think a byproduct of those things is you see companies with like sort of more flat structure really excel at those things. I think that because that's just sort of conducive to the flat structure, there are obviously trade-offs, but that's what I would say is how you get that atmosphere of creativity. Those would be like the sort of recipe. Those are like the key recipe ingredients in my mind. Right. And maybe I could go back to the previous question. Um, so Conrad, at the GPM forum, you and Veronica presented a pretty structured framework for how you guys do kind of this new game identification and valuation process. But it does seem like, you know, Yukin was pretty successful before, especially with Bingo, for example. So can you talk about a couple of things first in terms of like, why did you guys believe that a new process was necessary? And then going back to like, you know, what was the process before for you know, games like Bingo, where you guys actually were pretty successful? Uh, yeah. So I think we've always, we, we've always had a process and it's definitely been iterative. Um, you know, and I think that's what Veronica and I spoke to is that, you know, as you're, as the company grows or as you sort of continue to experience success and as the industry matures, um, I, I think you have to react in different ways. And in the main way that like the entity or like the main way that a company reacts is in how it adapts its process to operate. And so as, you know, the mobile space continues to get competitive, as people continue to come up with like great ideas, I think it's when you're thinking about exploring, you know, we've always operated one very creatively and two very like sort of exploratory. Um, that's how a lot of our success has come from being open to exploring. And so the main thing that I think is important is just sort of adding a little searchlight to that exploration. So it's like, you know, you're always going to be, or I think we should always be exploratory, but with some sort of added like rigor around, okay, like where do we think there's the potential for the most opportunity? Um, and then where can we go explore? So just adding like that sort of preliminary step, I think can supercharge the results, or at least that's the thought, but that's the way that we're looking at things now. It sounds, um, I want to talk a little bit about marketability, which isn't necessarily something I think, not a word we've we've used yet, but I think in terms of looking at where the opportunity is and kind of what do we want to go after, I think the market obviously plays a big part in that. How are you looking at or identifying opportunities in the market that you guys want to go after? Yeah, so I think I would like take that idea and kind of unpack that into a couple steps when we're talking about like, what should we do and just kind of planning overall. And this kind of sounds like an 
an obvious statement, but I think it's really important to break down the steps. So you have, in order to sort of be successful, you need to understand what opportunities exist. There's probably going to be multiple. Then you have to, so after you understand what opportunities are out there, you have to evaluate your ability to execute on those opportunities. And then you have to pick an opportunity that you think will yield the most upside. So that's, I, I think, somewhat obviously sort of what's happening under the hood when you're sort of planning what you should do. And the context of that is you're trying to understand what else is happening in the market. I mean, you know, there's a number of like data intelligence services. I think even the fact, even the number and increase in number of these services, like App Annie, 42 Matters, Game Refinery, you know, there's so many uh, that are getting into the space to provide this value, liquid and grit, um, that have or that are building successful businesses it points to the fact that people want this data yeah you know like it's almost price of entry some of this information um and there's a, another sort of caveat that i think that everyone sometimes takes for granted is that it's you know um i don't want to say situational but like you know um area or like you know broadly accurate at at best, like plus minus, you know, 20, 30% is kind of what I would look at it. If I'm looking at an intelligence report, I'm going to say, okay, cool, whatever it is. And I guess really depends on the metric. You know, I think that that grows when you're talking about other areas. Um, so I think you have to be somewhat skeptical when you think about that stuff, because you have to remember there are estimates, but I think using those estimates to understand what's happening in the market now is really useful. And I think that really, or at least the way that I look at it is you try to build a perspective on what's going on now, where people are focused on and where has their focus sort of shifted in the last sort of like in the last recent period call it like three months and obviously you know if you only pay attention to what's happening now that doesn't that's not necessarily indicative of what's going to happen in the future but it helps you make educated guesses about where people are going to focus and what comparable products might exist in the future um so that's one of the ways that i kind of think about it and then in terms of how we go about doing that we'll use um you know we'll use intelligence data i've written some tools sort of like on top of those to process the data that they share to help build perspective on you know what other call it main competitors are doing or what the market's doing in general and where is consumer interest got it and Conrad, just for our audience just so that they can have a clear idea in terms of like the process that you guys have and the types of analysis that you guys do could you kind of like take a step back and then just like high level what are the specific process steps like one through five and then what are the analysis that and types of analysis that you do at each step? Sure. Thanks, Joe. I can speak to that. So the main thing and the sort of the different steps that we'll look at is once we're trying to understand, I think the first step is like, okay, broadly speaking, what category or what, you know, groups of categories, you know, if you're looking at iOS, you know, you have primary category and subcategory. I think that helps you sort of frame things at the start. I guess I'm going to talk through some of this analysis, presuming that everybody listening or some people listening have a, a fairly good perspective on the who's who of the top one to 200 grossing publishers, um, because I think that that information is definitely a prerequisite to, to be able to sort of do this analysis. I think you really need to have an understanding of who else is out there in order to understand where there might be opportunity and, and what areas other people aren't exploring. So, you know, at the start, I think it really helps understanding, like I think trend analysis is really important. So looking at um, things like download and revenue estimates over time, it's not sort of super sophisticated, but just understanding, you know, for the head of a market in a given area, or if you're looking at something, an example, like bubble shooters, example, we're not making bubble shooters, nor will we likely ever, but bubble shooters, for example, understanding, you know, who's in the space, who's been successful, who's failed. One of the things that I try to look for, if you're looking at an opportunity and trying to think, oh, like, is there room somewhere if you're doing a plus one, um, you know, like how many bodies are there on the floor? That's kind of a grim, <laughs> 
you, you really tend to get this bias where you look at the top of the charts or you look at the charts and you're like, hey, look, there's like, you know, these there's only like X number of games. And, you know, how could we not be successful if we do this? But that's this sort of, it's, it's very easy to see the success cases and a lot more difficult to see the failure cases. And I think that's where you need to sort of build time on. And so when I'm evaluating something, I kind of want to say like, hey, who are all the, you know, like, I don't really care about, you know, how successful, you know, um, game X or game Y is. I want to know about, you know, sort of games A through X that were unsuccessful. And there's these two breakout hits. And then from there, if you're, if you feel comfortable with that, with the shape of that market, which that might make me feel a little nervous, then I would try and understand it more. But I think it's, you know, one trap that you can fall into is naively thinking that you can do better than everybody else. Like that needs to be the attitude that you go into making games with. But I don't necessarily know that um, you, you need to sort of balance that with some realism about like, okay, well, maybe there's there a reason why these all failed. And I think unless you have like a decent, at least hypothesis for that, it's always difficult because you need to validate the hypothesis somehow. Um, but at least having a, a sort of a, a reasonable narrative for why that's happened and, and for the ways that you're not going to be, I think is important. And, and what about sort of once you've gone through um, your analysis, you've gone through the kind of refinement of your game pitches from 100 to kind of 10%, and now you have some concepts that you kind of like, have you ever sort of, do you guys ever consider using playable ads, for example, as a way of testing, actually testing the marketability of a game concept? Or even kind of put differently, how do you approach validating a new product innovation or even a new game concept or mechanic early on in the process before you basically invest too much behind it that then you've sort of wasted time or human resources yeah so i think testing testing super important i think it really depends on the scope of what you're testing like if you have a novel core loop that you can really clearly just stick it to a playable and run it yeah for sure and if you have somebody who can build the playables relatively cheaply i think that's a no-brainer but i think it depends if you're you know doing a 4x game and you're like oh you know our unique differentiating features are the reason we're going to be so successful is x like i don't know that x is always going to be sort of able to be tested in a playable ad i think sometimes you know it may be easier to fake with video and and then sort of evaluate top of funnel metrics before you actually continue to invest but yeah i totally agree that it's great to figure out how to test ahead of time and look for sort of early signals that hey you know this might be the better direction to go in i think there's definitely a little bit of danger in in sort of being too prescriptive about what you're going to be able to identify i think you're really just looking for you want to rule out oh this is a really bad idea or identify oh this is a really great idea because um, I think there's all there's tons of things that can make like certain metrics you know like I think that there's a, a fallacy where you know like the accounting department or, or, or just in general like from a project finance perspective someone's gonna be like okay so what's the CPI of this game gonna be can we you know can we spend you know x dollars and find that out and I think that well one you know the cost to acquire is going to be largely driven not only by how successful it is but it's you know how much are you going to try and spend on it over what time horizon in what context relative to what everybody else is trying to do. And so I think that that's why like, I sometimes will get leery of like, oh, you know, trying to divine too much. But I think that broadly speaking, you know, understanding opportunity and marketability early, super huge. Mm -hmm. And like everyone should be doing that. All right, Conrad. Um, another question I have is how does Yukin like to approach new game products from the perspective of kind of betting on existing genres and doing a plus one versus doing something really radical, more innovative, something completely new? Um, 
So I think that there's, uh, and we talked a little about this before, but I think that there's definitely opportunity for doing both. I mean, we definitely do both plus ones or, you know, incrementing or sort of, you know, trying to like push a certain genre, you know, like we've had demonstrative success, both in like social casino and in trivia, you know, in the trivia case, we said, hey, look, you know, we think there's opportunity for a trivia game that's stronger in IP. And then we sort of executed both with Jeopardy and with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And they, you know, sort of fluctuate in the top grossing for those two categories respectively so I think it's really about like project objectives and in what else is happening at that time in the studio um so we're working on both things now candidly but I, I think it's really the most important thing I think is sort of critical about what it is that you're doing you know when you're looking at a new project I, I think it's helpful at the start to say okay this is going to be something net new versus okay you know we want to explore this genre we think we can you know bring from specific insight or we think there's something that other people have missed but i think the dangerous thing is to say like we're going to do something new and you sort of start trying to plus one and then it sort of mutates in a you know like a bad way and then you have something that doesn't satisfy any initial thesis and then so really what i'm talking about is you run the risk of coming up with something that doesn't actually appeal to anybody if you visualize a, a venn diagram where you have and i think it's most common when people are trying to sort of mash up genres where of one circle that's you know audience a is in, is interested in and then you have the right circle which audience b is interested in and, and you're looking for the union um, of both audiences and then after you know spending too many days in a room or too long researching and you come up with this sort of frankenstein idea and you end up getting the intersection instead of the union i think that's kind of like the negative outcome and i think that happens when you're not sort of circumspect at the start about what the objective what you hope to kind of come to if that makes sense got it and then what about competitive intensity in, in terms of the decision-making when you're pursuing a new game in a category that may be really crowded? Like, how do you know when that market is worth pursuing or not? I think there's a number of different ways to sort of evaluate that. Overall, I mean, the market has... Pretty, you know, everywhere is pretty competitive, regardless of what genre that you look at. You'll see a lot of people that know what they're doing. So I think it comes down to really evaluating the team's ability to execute on the opportunity that gives you confidence. I would personally feel pretty hesitant to enter into a category like match three. So what that would mean is I think it just sets the level of rigor necessary and sets the bar for how good the idea needs to be when you look at how competitive something is match three being a great example so you know there are a lot of people who have spent a lot of money both on marketing and on product innovation that unless you're bringing something pretty compelling to the table it seems like you're just getting into a money throwing fight with a fairly low probability of success and that sounds somewhat dogmatic but i think it's important to be practical right and then from your experience and from a yukin perspective what what are some of the biggest pitfalls you've run into with new game creation and how what advice would you give to other development studios out there to avoid some of those pitfalls in future games that they want to work on? Sure. First one, underscoring process. Have a process and be consistent with the process. You need to be flexible when you want to improve and innovate on the process. After you've run something through an approach, you'll typically learn things about it. But if you're iterating on your process too frequently, you'll find that the later ideas that you come up with when you've gone through and evaluated them, you, re you won't really be able to compare the scores. And that's another thing. If you have the luxury of time, I think it's really important 
important to evaluate multiple things with the same criteria in the same process so that you can effectively stack rank, hey, what is it that we should do? You can't really, you know, if you're looking at, okay, what, what should we do? Just sort of doing this in isolation or not doing it enough, I think can give you a, a fairly poor outcome or a fairly poor output. So being at going through a number of different things and trying a number of different ideas um, through, a, sort of, through a scoring system, through a process, through research, and then you kind of get to a place where you can accurately compare uh, multiple different opportunities and then make an educated decision about that. Some of the things that I talked about earlier are things that I would really try to avoid. So being really clear about, hey, this is going to be a plus one. We think we can have success in this category. And then going through research and going through a sort of mini general design and, and sort of sticking true to that and saying, yes, this feels like a plus one. This doesn't feel like something totally new. Or if it's a side project or, or if it's, you know, the studio smaller, or if it's a kind of ad hoc team or, or something where you're just kind of working, trying to innovate, being really clear about that and saying, look, this isn't a plus one word swinging for a home run. We want to do something totally net new. And our research and ideas is going to sort of prove that. And then that also sort of shapes the type of research that you're doing. You're trying to validate that nobody else has done this versus the plus one. You're trying to figure out what have people done? What's led to success and where's their rooms? It's kind of similar, but I think with some nuanced differences. And then I think the third thing, and this sort of ties back to studio culture and the way that um, we've always operated is on really team strengths important. You, like you need to be able to execute on the opportunity that you identify. So just because there's space in the mid-core market for a full 3D real-time battler doesn't mean that you and you know whatever resources you have are the right people to execute on that. And I think being circumspect about that is, is really important. So sort of matching opportunity with uh, capacity to execute. I think is important. And I think that's sort of like an unsexy thing to keep in mind. But I think it leads to f more success in the future if you're circumspect about the opportunities that you try to execute on. Interesting. For my question, I, I kind of want to zoom out and in a sense, loop back to where we started, which was kind of talking about M&A in the industry. If we're looking more generally at the industry, how do you think M&A stacks up against new product development? Is it sometimes cheaper to buy another existing game versus trying to create one? from scratch in-house you know it works presumably you can sort of make a call on whether you think there'd be a good kind of dna fit team wise do you think that that happens and do you think it'll happen more yeah for sure i think that's something that's going to continue happening obviously sort of at the relative scale and you know everyone's doing m a for different reasons whether it's a sort of small to medium-sized studio eating up a really small team and it's not only the game it's getting acquired, but it's uh, the team. So it's like an acquire hire thing as well. You know, I think that's, you know, always interesting to see happen when you see larger guys acquiring small and profitable. Like, I think that's, you know, there's obvious reasons for that too. I don't think that it's going to, you know, we're going to get to a place where it's sort of swing. I think it's always going to be a pendulum and it's always going to sort of be somewhat balanced in the middle. But definitely, I think that as the industry matures, you're going to see smaller teams doing more innovative things and having more success because that's, I think, where the incentives tend to lie but it's still you know to have a top grossing very successful title i mean it, there's no way around it it takes a lot of sophisticated acquisition sophisticated product um, and i don't think that's anything that happens overnight so i think you will still see consolidation interesting it's been a great episode and lovely chatting to you i'm slightly disappointed that we didn't manage to convince you to sing out i need a pro and for anyone who wonders why i keep mentioning this you'll have to check out the amazing article on deconstructor of fun um which we will 
we'll put in the show notes because then the joke will make sense. But yes, awesome episode. Uh, thanks, Joe, as always, and Conrad for being on the show with us today. And thank you everyone for listening. Tune in next episode for more game product managers talking all things GPM related here on Level Up. Thank you.